from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Amen. Rejoice. God's love is poured over you this day for healing, restoration, and hope. Feel the, the power of God's mercy in your life. Go into God's world knowing you are forgiven and blessed and be a blessing to others. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first reading is from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 31. It can be found on your pew Bible on page 29 of the Old Testament if you would like to follow along. Listen to God's word to you and to me. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He told them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have stri striven with God and with humans, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture lesson comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Listen now for God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Katie and I had a dinner with some friends this summer. And as we began our meal, I asked this couple about how their children were doing. They went on to talk in a very tender and personal way about their mid-20-year-old son who has a bipolar diagnosis and also an ongoing battle with a drug addiction. Uh, As one of them was sharing uh, all the emotions and the struggles and the pain related to their son's mental health, the other started to tear up. The, The anguish was recognizable on their faces. Then one of them said, even now, it is so difficult to talk about. Even as we are putting to words our story and what we're experiencing, it It's so hard to share, even when we're in a safe space, even when we're in the company of friends. There are realities, aren't there? There there are stories, there are truths that are difficult for us to tell. No matter the reason for our silence, embarrassment, or shame, or regret, or avoidance, or fear of consequences if we do tell our truth. There's also the reality that that we don't know exactly what to do with our story. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to tell it. We don't have the words, but we can feel it pressing in on us. We don't know where to begin to find our healing. And so we don't always speak accurately. We don't always tell the truth about ourselves. We don't always tell the truth to ourselves. Uh, We don't always tell the truth to God, and we don't always tell the truth to others. It's hard sometimes to tell the truth about what we're facing or, or what's really going on with us. Even still in an age where performance and production and image are so often prioritized over honesty and confession, truth becomes what we project. Truth becomes what we choose to show the world. So our situation is this. We know that truth-telling is very difficult on its own account. But in our cultural context, that difficulty is exponentially raised because performance and image, we have come to believe, are what people want. In many ways, we are conditioned and formed to want it too. Not the real, but something else. 
For me, there's something powerful, something inspiring, something transformative when I see or I hear someone tell the truth. I've always connected with the musical and the story Les Miserables for that reason. When, when Jean Valjean, one of, the, uh, one of the main characters of that story, tells the truth about his past. When the police captain Javert is in his presence and, and he declares that I am prisoner 24601, when that scene happens, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. There's something powerful when he tells the truth. There's something powerful when he faces his past and he's finally liberated from the imposter identity that he carries and is liberated for a more authentic, truthful future. Uh, this week I, I visited a couple in their home. Uh, he's on hospice and, and dying of cancer. When the diagnosis came, they discerned with one another and with their family and with their doctors what was best for them in terms of the quality of life. And they decided that they would immediately go on hospice. And what was so amazing as I sat in their living room listening to the way in which they were telling their story, describing the moments of their life in real time, the way that they were able to name that death was inevitable the way that they were able to name what the future was going to hold, to talk honestly with one another, to share that intimacy of, of truth-telling. When, when you see something like that, it sticks with you. It forms you. It challenges you. It's a powerful thing to behold. When someone doesn't sugarcoat the realities in which they live, when somebody tells the truth about their situation, about what they're facing. And there's a certain measure of freedom that opens up to those who are willing to name those truths. And there's a certain power that they hold when they face the realities head on. I remember a few years ago, I was serving a church in Pennsylvania when the Jerry Sandusky trial broke and that story came to the national media's attention. Longtime assistant football coach at Penn State was accused and eventually convicted of unspeakable crimes. I, I preached soon after those accusations came to light. Now, to, to preach about this topic in Pennsylvania, when you are about to levy criticism against the actions of those deeply embedded in this sacred institution known as Nittany Lion football, that was dangerous territory for a preacher. But we had to speak the truth in that moment. And the congregation did just that. During the sermon, I invited anyone who experienced pain or suffering in like ways that that I and the pastoral staff were there to, to meet with them and to walk with them and to begin the process of healing or to continue it. I, I finished the, the final sermon of the morning. I, I'll never forget this walking back to my office and there was David, a, a, a man in his mid-60s, sort of leaning against the wall. It looked like the wall was keeping him upright and he had tears in his eyes and we went into my office and he simply said, it happened to me, his mid-60s. And he said, you're the first person I've ever 
I've ever told. And as he was able to speak that truth, the truth of what he had survived, he began on a new road to healing and hope. When he was able to be honest about the burden he had been carrying for so many years, he was empowered to reframe his story, to reframe it from one of shame and silence to an understanding that by God's grace and God's unconditional love, that healing and wholeness can be his. In the years since, he's, he's become a Stephen minister and a Stephen leader. You know we have this ministry in our own churches. People are trained as Christian caregivers to walk alongside of people as they begin to deal with the truths and realities of their lives. And he's taken that ministry and he's been trained in that ministry. And it reminds me of something that spiritual writer Brendan Manning once wrote. He said, in a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. These examples that I have just named are, are more concentrated on that area of truth-telling that has to deal with honesty sort of naming things as they are, naming the burdens or realities in which we live for the sake of healing. But there is also part of truth-telling that's not just about honesty, it's also about confession. It's also about naming the places where we have missed the mark of God's very best for our lives and God's very best for the world. It's, it's about naming with our lips in confession that we have fallen short of what God intends for our life to be. We tell the truth of what we have done and what we have left undone, also for the sake of healing, also for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. And as we approach the text set before us this morning from Genesis 32, I want to look at this text and I want to invite you to consider it from the point of view of the discipline of truth-telling. But in particular, with these two concentrations in mind, what does it mean to be honest with the realities in which we live? And what does it also mean to confess what we have done and what we have undone? For both honesty and confession are part of this discipline of truth-telling. I suggest to you this morning that the way to liberation, the way to reconciliation, the way to healing, the way to forgiveness in the economy of God is to tell the truth, is to be honest, is to confess. And I think in part, Genesis 32 is about truth-telling. You know, if you've been around this summer, if you've been here live or watched on demand or live streaming, you, you have seen us weave in and out of the Genesis narrative, and we have seen many of the characters come to life in these weeks. And we've traced a little bit of Jacob's story. That's what this text is about again today. Jacob, as you know, was a twin. He had a brother named Esau who was the firstborn. And the author of Genesis tells us that Jacob was born literally grasping the heel of his brother. Jacob's name means leg puller. 
That's how it translates. Like the English idiom, stop pulling my leg. Stop joking around. Stop joshing me. Stop trying to trick me. That name kind of sets the pace for Jacob's life story. Now, as the firstborn, his brother Esau was entitled to receive two distinct privileges in his life, two distinct privileges from his father. First, he was to receive the birthright, and then he was to receive the blessing. First, the birthright. That was the inheritance that was due to the firstborn son. The father would give to him a double portion of the land and possessions. If there were two sons, the eldest would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the other brother would receive one-third. Not only was Esau due that double portion inheritance, but, but he was also set to receive the family blessing. This is the second privilege he is to receive as the firstborn. It's, it's more spiritual in nature than physical. This is a blessing that is, that is passed down to the eldest son who will eventually become the patriarch and leader of the household. Now, even though both of these privileges were reserved for Esau, Jacob and his mother Rebekah had other plans in mind. And you get to Genesis 25, where Esau has returned home after a long day of work in the open country. He has come back, says the writer, famished and weary, so much so that Jacob sees this as an opportunity to play on his brother's weakness, on his brother's hunger pains. And he convinces Esau to swear an irrevocable oath to trade birthrights. For what? One piece of bread and a simple cup of soup. Esau's hunger was so great, and the trickster Jacob took advantage of him and swindled the birthright out of his hands. Fast forward two chapters, Genesis 27. Isaac, their father, has uh, failing eyesight. He is now blind, and he, and he sends for Esau. Maybe he begins to sense the time is drawing near, and now he has to confer the blessing to his oldest son. And so he calls to him and asks him to go out and hunt for game and then bring that back and to prepare a meal. They will share it together, and then he will confer the blessing. And so Esau goes out obeying his father's command. The boy's mother and Jacob see this as another opportunity. And so he has servants prepare a meal. And Jacob puts on Esau's clothes that were in the house. And because Esau, we're told, was hairy, he covered his arms with goat hair. And so he comes in to his blind father. And his father asks him a very specific question. What is your name? Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. So they eat together, they share a meal together, and Isaac blesses Jacob. Jacob is now two for two in stealing from his brother. Immediately after Jacob departs, Esau comes back with a meal, ready to receive the blessing. Isaac is confused by the presence of the real Esau, and he discovers that Jacob has lied to him but it's too late. The blessing has already been given. The leg puller, the trickster Jacob, was now the named heir to Isaac's household. And from that point on, says the writer, Esau hated Jacob. Feeling the heat of that hatred, Jacob gets out of town. Here last week, Connie filled in some of the gaps, but, but there are about two decades between that story and what takes place in Genesis 32. 
And Jacob finally has a sense that he wants to come home. So he sends a messenger ahead of his large caravan bearing gifts for his brother Esau. And the messenger comes back to Jacob and says that Esau is coming out, but he's not coming out alone. He has 400 men with him. And if you're Jacob, you're thinking, I'm a dead man walking. So Jacob, still scheming, devises a plan to separate his household into two, divided in half, each going different directions. So when Esau comes upon one of the groups, he'll destroy everyone, kill everyone, plunder everything, but at least half of the other group will stay alive. Hardly a noble plan. But that's what he decides to do. And they come to the banks of the Jabbok River and they camp for the night. And that's when the wrestling commences. Some stranger enters into Jacob's tent and picks a fight. And for all Jacob knows, it's Esau. And maybe this is Esau breaking into his tent, ready to bring justice to his brother. And the wrestling match, we're told, lasts all night long. The text says that when the man saw that he could not prevail over Jacob, that he struck his hip, and Jacob falls to the ground, and I love this symmetry, he grabs the man's leg and says, bless me. Does this not remind you of Jacob grabbing onto the heel of his brother Esau? This is the story of his life. And now the pinnacle moment of the narrative. The man asks Jacob in another moment of symmetry, what is your name? Just as Isaac asked two decades earlier, Jacob is again asked for the truth. We know what he said the first time around. What will he say now? At first he said he was Esau. And now... When confronted with the same question, he speaks the reality of who he is. He says, I am Jacob. And by giving his real name, isn't he essentially confessing, I am the trickster? I am the leg puller. I'm the one who went after things that did not belong to me. I took advantage of my brother in his time of weakness, and I lied to my father to get something that did not belong to me. It's only when Jacob tells the truth about his life. Did you notice this in the story? It's only when he gives his name does the blessing come. It's only when he, he's honest. It's only when he confesses that the blessing of God can come. That the reconciliation with his brother can take place. And friends, I believe the same is true for us I believe the same is true in our relationship with God. I think the same is true in our relationship with one another and in our relationship with ourselves. Part of life with God, part of life with God is God's engagement in getting into our tent and asking us, what is your name? That's how God rolls from time to time enters into a place where we least expect God to show up in that intimacy of the tent, in maybe the silence and the secrecy, and asks, what is your name? And friends, it's going to feel like a wrestling match. It's going to feel like a fight. But when we tell the truth, and when we're honest about our past and who we are and what we carry and what is really real, 
We become open to God's unconditional love and the blessings of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of healing, of peace and purpose. We put ourselves in a position to receive what God really wants to give us, what we really need, to receive a new name, to receive a new mission, a new opportunity to be light for healing as others tell their truth. And so the question I leave with us this morning is what truth do you need to tell? Where is honesty required? Where is confession required? Where is God showing up in your tent and asking you for the truth? Tell it to God in prayer. Tell it to the people who you feel most safe with. Tell it to one of the the pastors who are more than ready to walk with you in your journey. Be willing to tell it to yourself. It's going to feel like a wrestling match. It's going to feel like a fight. But only when the truth is told does the blessing come. And because of who God is and what God has done and what God will do, the blessing will come in abundance. I promise you that. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.